Welcome to another episode of Flatlander. I'm one of your hosts, Laura. And I'm your other host, Lindsay. And um, today we're going to be talking about a very exciting episode. Um, I know that there are a lot of potential things out there that we could discuss that might be perceived as boring, but you know what's not boring? Native plants. Native plants. You're dead on. They are super exciting. And if you are not on the native plants train, then you are behind the times. Mm-hmm. Like these, this is the way to go. And we have the perfect expert for us today to talk us through all things Kansas native plants. We have Brad Gurr from the Dick Arboretum. Welcome, Brad. Thank you, Laura. Lindsay, happy to be with you. Yeah, we're really excited that you're here with us. Brad, could you talk a little bit about your career, your background? How did you get into native plants, where you're at now? Just give us the the nitty-gritty details of your whole life. (laughs) Maybe not all the gritty details. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's back in high school. I have some summer jobs and so forth, spending time outdoors, um, you know, leading into um, the sort of the, the later jobs as I started gearing towards college. And one of those was working at uh, a nearby Arboretum called Dick Arboretum of the Plains. <laughs> I grew up in, in Mound Ridge, only about uh, six miles from, from Heston, where Dick Arboretum is located. And I happened to cross this summer job where I got to be involved with grounds management and maintenance. And that exposed me to my, you know, sort of introduction to native plants and sort of started to explore that more with uh, another some, yeah, job at Bethel College at Coffin Museum, where they had uh, one of the oldest uh, prairie restorations in Kansas. And that aligned with, you know, some influences of my, you know, my dad, my grandfather, uncles that, you know, all were interested in in birds and being outdoors, just all gave this this sort of various contributions to uh, being interested in outdoors around me. I, uh, I veered towards some different um, areas of focus in, in college and eventually ended up on in environmental studies. And after becoming a little disoriented by the environmental problems out there and, you know, understanding some of the degradation and destruction that we have, you see in our environment, I, I started to get more inspired by what, what is positive about our environment around us and, and started to kind of get that feeling with, you know, green space, green space makes me happy, you know, parks, natural areas, things of that nature. And thinking about how, you know, we're having this increasing world population and we're having decreasing areas of green space knew that some kind of either conservation, preservation, restoration of, of green spaces was something that sounded intriguing and might be in my future. Graduating from a liberal arts institution with a broad environmental studies degree is probably about as disorienting as you might be able to choose with regard to choosing a vocation or trying to get a job. And so it became pretty clear to me after a couple of years of voluntary service, uh, it was in St. Louis, was able to work with a a few different entities, an environmental organization that did uh, kind of political activism work, 
uh, Missouri Botanical Gardens, where I got to do some you know, more just kind of data entry with the uh, Florida Missouri Project, and uh, a renewable energy company that did education in K-12 schools. So an assortment of those experiences sort of helped further shape some of my interests and helped me know that after that I wanted to do grad school. and something focusing on native plants and ecological restoration. And so with a heavy focus in graduate school on botany and ecology and, you know, and adding some of the other ologies, you know, entomology and, and uh, avian ecology and uh, just other areas that, that were also fascinating soils, etc. that I was start, starting to build this uh, sort of background and interest in, in native ecosystems. And when I got out of graduate school with a degree in in landscape architecture, but it was focused on on ecological restoration, um, I was out to save the world. And little little did I know, or or I kind of knew this, but it was sort of disappointing to to know that there are few jobs out there that are (laughs) designed for ecological restoration. So I knew that if I was going to do something like this, I had to come at it from different tangents or, or sort of, you know, try to create my own uh, evolution of what that might be. And uh, came back towards the Kansas area uh, from, from Wisconsin and uh, to get closer to family. And, you know, and also this love for the Kansas landscape that at first I kind of wanted to get away from. And as I was away, you know, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I knew that the plains and and these, uh, you know, uh, disturbance-oriented ecosystems were really what uh, what felt like home to me, and and really helped develop my sense of place. So coming back to Kansas and searching for ways that I could could pursue my vocational interests led me to places like the Kansas Biological Survey and, you know, and entities like the Nature Conservancy and uh, Sierra Club, places that I thought could be those outlets, Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, and just realizing that the people that were doing the things that I would be interested in were really happy doing what they're doing. And there wasn't going to be a lot of turnover in those jobs. So uh, somebody at, at, at uh, Kansas Biological Survey pointed me towards uh, consulting, uh, environmental consulting. And uh, environmental consultants are oftentimes uh, in engineering firms where you have projects that are going to cause disturbance. And when those disturbances happen, they need to be uh, possibly avoided, minimized, and mitigated for according to state and federal regulations. So a number of environmental protection agencies out there, both at the state and federal levels, are there for monitoring and, and trying to minimize and, and then mitigate, if needed, those, those environmental impacts. So I found myself, after about eight years with uh, Burns McDonald uh, as an environmental engineering uh, company in, in Kansas City, um, I was in the, the permitting, uh, in environmental studies and permitting division uh, with a focus on wetlands and threatened endangered species. I was able to forge sort of new territory a bit for myself and understanding the differences between environmental protection and natural world out there and fitting that in between the real world that is surrounded by lots of environmental impacts. And uh, while I was sort of disappointed that I was in a realm where I was seeing lots of 
of impacts. Uh, I knew that I was there as at least of a broker or so, of some sort to try to help protect the environment as the laws will allow, and and being that uh, that middle person to to help navigate that uh, that world between you know say uh, entities that are out there doing development and and also the ones that are trying to protect the, the natural resources, and so. Uh, that was a very educational process uh, being in that environmental consulting realm. But as I, as I, you know, developed skills and field work and, and did a lot more project management, started doing some marketing and so forth and being asked to be more of it at administrative levels. I, I knew that if I was going to pursue some of those passions that I developed in graduate school and earlier in ecological restoration, I needed to, I needed to look for other opportunities and, I remember the Arboretum and that uh, some of those uh, original uh, lessons learned uh, back in high school and college and started to check into the, you know, what the Dick Arboretum was doing. It was only a few hours away. We were living in Kansas City at the time and uh, we had family still in the area and long story short, started touching base with them thinking about some of the, the restoration projects that they might be developing in the future started volunteering, helping write grants, writing myself into some of those grants, and eventually sort of worked my way into a, a part-time job and eventually a full-time job. And that uh, that entry back into Dick Arboretum was about 18 years ago. And I've been loving my work ever since. That's I'll great. Leave it at that, see if you have any more questions and follow up. Well, <laughs> I just have one comment. So obviously you've got a solid understanding of biology and systems thinking and um, a lot of experience in your career, but I think what's so cool about you is that that landscape design piece um, in your education, because that, to me, that's what bridges the gap sometimes between like restoration ecology and like the average person living in the suburbs, um, hmm. the design piece. So I think that's, that's what, and it comes through in your blog posts and your trainings at Dick Arboretum. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. Thanks. I, I realized some deficits in, in those areas. You know, I, if I could go back and, and fill holes in education, uh, I would, I would like to add say more of an undergraduate degree in landscape architecture. I would like to be more uh, skilled and better versed in taking conceptual ideas and putting them on paper in really aesthetically pleasing ways, you know, yes. <laughs> like landscape architects can do. Uh, coming at it from more of an, an environmental studies undergraduate or, you know, thinking about lots of different systems uh, in, in the environments that surround us. And then going into that graduate degree where I sort of skipped over some of the design elements in, in traditional landscape architecture, but came at it more from um, uh, a systems approach, you know, ecological restoration. And so, and that, and some of those differences show up, for me today now here at the Arboretum, you know, like my colleague Scott has more of a horticultural background and he's maybe better versed in talking about, you know, how we might design certain plants in an aesthetic way uh, on the landscape where I'll come at it more from thinking about ecological systems component, like enhancing biological diversity and not necessarily prioritizing the aesthetics. And so, it's been a nice thing about my time, you know, more than a decade of, of working here in this environment where 
Scott and I and Katie and Janelle were all kind of trading ideas on, on how to, you know, make native plants most interesting and palatable to the general public out there. We're bringing in these different perspectives and ideas, you know, both a horticultural perspective and an ecological perspective. And I think we've, we've all sort of learned from each other about how to come in and come at it from different ways. Like I'm a lot more today, you know, thinking ecologically, but recommending planting uh, species in threes and fives and, you know, and how to arrange them maybe that, that fit a little bit more aesthetically pleasing that maybe will make the landscaping movement of native plants more interesting and palatable to the masses out there, you know, than, than just a, a botany geek who wants everybody to have a small piece of ecology in their landscapes. Yes. Okay. That's cool. We're writing things down over here, mm-hmm. um, planting in threes and fives. Well, let's, let's kind of start from the beginning can you give us a definition? What is a native plant? Yeah. When, when you asked that in some of the things, you know, early on, uh, I'd think about that a little bit because there are various definitions, but I, I landed on this, a plant that has evolved in a given location and that is adapted to the local climate, soils, moisture, and light regimes, disturbance patterns, and fauna. This matters in an ecological context, because when it is adapted in these ways, it enhances the diversity of that space and gives it as much as it receives. So when people are looking at native plants and they're seeing how non-native plants can thrive in this kind of atmosphere and they tend to lead more toward the aesthetic and somewhat functional aspect of, let's say, bush honeysuckle, how do we go from planting non-native species to encouraging our listeners to go the native plant route? That's a rich question. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry for just throwing it out there like that. Um, like how do we reiterate the importance of planting native plants rather than just going to your local Walmart and picking up something that was grown somewhere else in a completely different part of the country that may or may not benefit native wildlife. And is easier to plant and cheaper yes. and is just known and people are comfortable with it. Yeah. How do we make that cross? And we might not have the answer to that. Brad has the answer. I know he does. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take a stab at it. It, It's it's maybe my answer. Um, You know, a a plant like bush honeysuckle uh, may very well and say it's, you know, European or Japanese. There there are various honeysuckles that both come from Europe and, and Japan that may be fitting into that environment from a native plant perspective and they're controlled and they, you know, contribute as much as they take in, in those kind of situations, because it may be that there are limiting factors with the climate or, you know, wildlife, you know, there may be a, a certain, you know, animal that, that will eat that plant or, you know, other plants that, that really are, um, good competitors uh, with say bush honeysuckle, but when that plant is brought here, and at least for the moment, and we'll say that moment could be hundreds or thousands of years, that plant is is thriving more than it maybe did in its original environment because it doesn't have the same limiting factors or the same, you know, animals that that use it as a host plant or competitors in in that plant environment and so for the meantime bush honeysuckle has this competitive advantage you know it stays green longer in the spring and in the fall and uh you know has 
of a competitive advantage that it builds in there. It, you know, produces just loads of berries that many birds find palatable and they'll take and they'll spread them. And, you know, and we're, and we're dealing with an environment that is, that is changing so quickly as well. You know, Kansas is not historically a, a woodland setting where you find a bush honeysuckle that, that does really well. So as we remove disturbance from the landscape, we remove grazers, we remove fire, uh, we're having a quickly changing and evolving landscape where plant communities are, 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 are changing fairly rapidly, you know, and we're seeing like in less than a hundred years, or even if you look at say the last 30 or 40 years, like in the Flint Hills, how quickly they're being taken over by, by woody plants in the absence of these disturbance mechanisms that have kept woody plants at bay, you know? And, and so not only does like a bush honeysuckle have, this competitive advantage with plants in its same category, like, you know, woodland plants and shrubs and so forth. It's also taking advantage of a landscape that is, that is changing rapidly and is becoming less and less of a prairie landscape and more of a a wooded, wooded landscape as well. And we see that problem exacerbated. And I've heard people at the nature conservancy give great talks on this uh, really eye-opening talks about, you know, and thinking of the Flint Hills as an example that, you know, not only do you see these infusion corridors of like say riparian areas, uh, you know, streams, rivers, and so forth, where these woody plants will migrate into the landscape from there, but you're also having, you know, development, of, you know, homes and, and, uh, you know, little ranchettes and places like that where people plant woody plants and there. It's just the number of infusion points or the, the number of seed sources uh, coming from woody plants are just growing exponentially in the landscape. And so I guess that's my attempt and I'll stop there no. <laughs> with regard to, you know, not only, you know, native woody plants that are taking over in Kansas that were, you know, limited to very protected areas along streams or in Eastern Kansas. Uh, so you get that, that disturbance element changing, but you also add non-native plants like, you know, that bush honeysuckle that, that are taking advantage of it in even greater ways than say the native plants are. So um, just to be clear for our listeners, bush honeysuckle, bad. Not good. Don't plant that, please. Brad, first, I want to apologize for throwing such a loaded question at you. Um, but I guess the reason that I'm asking it is, one, I love, love native plants, and I'm super behind the movement of getting everyone to start utilizing and falling in love with native plants like I have. I mean, when you're thinking about planting your spring garden and the scarlet begonias that you really want to go out and buy that are not native to Kansas, but are actually from, I think, Brazil. Um, they won't come back year after year, and they're beautiful, and you love the red flower, but have you ever thought about planting blank, planting blanket flower? Comes back year after year, or it reseeds mm-hmm. itself. It's stunning. It's beneficial for the environment. It saves on water. I mean, like, that's my burning question, is how do we get over that hump of planting pretty things as opposed to pretty and functional? One of the things that you touch on there that I, this is just, that is part of the issue is what, what are the source of plants? What are the sources of plants that we might bring into our landscape? You know, most of us live in urban areas and we're close to garden centers that many of them are promoting, you know, lots of plants and, you know, it's, it's easier to promote what the, the landscaping trade 
has out there, you know, and, and growing annuals are, are easier to grow and, uh, you can you can move them into people's hands quicker than you can say native plants that have a longer life cycle of development, and um, the yeah that that process and, and and people like to see flowers too, and so when you have a plant that is going to give you know that aesthetic eye candy that we've all been conditioned to to want to see and have in our landscapes that can go for you know that can flower for two to three months uh, of time as opposed to a native plant that is going to be spending a lot of its time feeding animals developing roots and then oh yeah it will flower but it may only do that for about a week or two you know um it can be hard to condition humans to choose native plants over over annuals in those kinds of situations. And so I think it comes with developing a greater appreciation for something other than just that, you know, immediate fix, that that eye candy, that uh, that sugar rush, however you want yes. to, you know, to kind of to kind of state it. And I think a lot of it comes with just that that educational process, you know, understanding the sense of place in Kansas, you know, what are the native plants that have been here for thousands of years that are adapted to the, the soils and the climate and the, are, are able to withstand all the swings of, of weather patterns and, and being munched on by animals and stuff. And, and they can do so because they have this extensive, you know, energy storage system underground that helps it come back uh, very easily and quickly, you know, um, being able to appreciate the process that that is formed with that. So understanding that, you know, that landscape uh, that precedes us, that that sense of place that we as humans can have interacted with for thousands of years here on this landscape. And also appreciating the, you know, the greater environment, the ecology of the place where we exist. And that ecology includes, you know, the wildlife. And you wouldn't have the wildlife if it wouldn't be for that first level of the food chain, which is that diversity of plants. And, you know, for to have that diversity of plants be there and come back every year, it has to be native plants. And, and so those perennials, those long lived perennials that are adapted to this place, uh, they're, they, they grow easily in these conditions. They like the soils that we have here. If you find the right moisture regime of plants that you're thinking about, whether it's, you know, drier upland plants or lower wetland plants, uh, and, and if you can establish those plants in place, then then you bring in the other parts of that ecosystem, the, the higher parts of that food pyramid or that food chain, you know, the first trophic level of oftentimes those insects or it may be, you know, or an herbivorous uh, uh, bird or, or a small mammal or, you know, amphibians, reptiles. And, and as you get up in the food chain and you get those trophic levels of one level eating another, you start to, to get more diversity of, of, of insects and different kinds of animals. And, 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 and the more diversity you have at the bottom in that, uh, that plant level, the more diversity of animals you're going to get higher up. And, and I think that's where another level of enjoyment comes in being wanting to be able to see the, the wildlife that gets attracted to a landscape and, uh, and, and appreciate that element as well. And uh, so I think that, you know, thinking about it from those perspectives and, and enjoying more than just the aesthetic of a flower, but being able to understand the, 
the, the broader aesthetic of an ecosystem and what it takes to build that ecosystem, I think is the approach that we have to come at. And it's, it's something that takes time. It takes patience, uh, but it takes a, a, a yearning for that environmental education that I think that enriches our lives. It makes us more uh, discerning and uh, more better, well, well-rounded people. So, yeah, I think what I'm hearing is native plants offer many more levels of enjoyment and appreciation than your average petunia. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, here's a bad analogy. A petunia is like boxed wine. And, can I make a wine analogy? Yeah. Okay. And then a native plant is like a, a Bordeaux, oh. a Bordeaux Cabernet Sauvignon. It's, there's just, it's, there's multi, there's layers to it. And speaking of, so I have a little, a three-year-old girl. She loves seeing all of the insects that use our prairie blazing star. Um, and, and like you said, Brad, it may only bloom for a week or two, but the insects, man, they use it all year or all, you know, season long. And that's just a yeah. whole layer of enjoyment for her and for me to see her. But that kind of brings me to a follow-up question because I have preached native plants. They support our insects and it supports the food web, et cetera, et cetera. And I've had people come back at me and say, well, I don't want bugs in my yard. Mm. What, what would you say to that? Because we've sort of been conditioned to get rid, you know, bugs are bad. They're going to eat all your leaves. And Yeah, that's, that's another level of conditioning too. And first of all, I'd say that maybe the jump from, from those uh, boring annuals to native plants would, would start with even Boone's farm. I mean, let's just go really low. On the, <laughs> I love it. On, yes. on the wine, wine analogy. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> uh, yeah. When it comes to insects, I think that you're touching on something that is just critical. And if I were be able to choose a, a whole nother path to come back to, to enhance or add lifetimes to this lifetime, it would be to, to circle back and, and study entomology and, and really not only gain a, a larger grasp for the immense amount of biological diversity represented in insects around us, but try to figure out ways to make it interesting and fascinating and palatable to the general population. And, uh, you know, you, I, you just hit it perfectly, Laura, in, in mentioning your daughter and, and having, you know, it starts with kids, you know, and, and as adults, many of us have been conditioned to have this ew factor of, about insects. And actually, uh, in Earth Partnership for Schools teacher, uh, kindergarten teacher, I thought said it best. We need to think of insects. When we think of insects, we need to go, ooh, not ew, um, in in how we, how we relate to them. And it really is a, a matter of mindset. I mean, if we think about the benefits that insects afford humans, you know, and it starts with, with pollination for many of our food sources, you know, the, the fruits and nuts and vegetables that, that we love and consume, um, you know, and thinking about the, you know, the breaking down of organic material in our landscape and how, you know, decomposers and insects play a, a huge role in that. And, Lindsay, we haven't even started talking about fungi yet and how that relates to it. But, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, an area that is not well embraced and like entomology and insects, we need to figure out ways to make those much more interesting and palatable because it, it's an, an, an integral part of, of our landscapes and our eco- ecosystems around us. And, you know, whether it's our food supplies or, or, or whatever it might be, uh, we need, we need to, 
turn that view on its head, you know, and not just get caught up on, you know, the mosquitoes or the ticks or the brown recluse spiders, you know, uh, of the arachnids or whatever, you know, that, that, that we see as our enemies or, or, you know, those few agricultural pests or whatever, and start to you know think about being more in sync with insects as, as our friends. And so, and I think that that's easy to, to, to grasp when we talk about native plants and landscaping with native plants, because, you know, who doesn't love to see the diversity of butterflies and, you know, and other kinds of bees and so forth, you know, that, not not referring to the occasional wasp sting or something that that we might encounter once in our lives or two, but you know just the, those fascinating worlds of diversity of all those different types of insects. And so we try to do that with some of our environmental education here, you know, breaking it down into some of the common orders of insects and and talking about some of the interesting elements of you know the the fly order, the diptera, or you know coming back to the you know the the straight wings, the the grasshoppers and katydids and, you know, and just, and trying to help encourage this positive association uh, with people and starting with kids. And I, it seems like a really uphill battle, but it's just, we've got to start there. We've got to, we've got to try to tackle that. Yeah. And, you know, insects are, palatable in more ways than just one. And if you haven't yet, go ahead and listen to our foraging and entomophagy episode, all about eating Mm -hmm. bugs and a great way to connect kids with the outdoors and getting them excited about bugs is to let them eat roly polies. But that's just a side note. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't have a picture of themselves sitting somewhere eating roly polies as a kid, right? I mean, hasn't everybody done that? Yes. (laughs) I never ate them, Brad. What's that? I never ate the roly poly. I, I would play with them, but eating, that's a whole other level. <laughs> yeah, I haven't actually oh, yeah. eaten I them the yet. Then. You're in the minority. <laughs> okay, no, so. I think that's great. Uh, yeah, we, we need to have many more positive associations with insects as a, as a dominant source of protein. You know, many countries yeah. in the world already see that and appreciate that. And, you know, if you were to tell some, many people in those countries that, Oh, maybe you should eat cows or chicken. They look like it look look at you like you're crazy. And so it yeah, I mean it's it's a matter of mindset and uh from an environmental uh standpoint of uh you know eating lower on the food chain and eating more of our proteins uh in in that direction of insects is is not only I, th- I think intriguing in many ways, but it's going to be essential for, you know, humans existence sustainably into the future. Uh so Brad I feel like we're picking up what you're putting down. And is it fair to say in the last couple of years, the monarch butterfly has really been kind of an ambassador species for convincing people to plant native? Um, Because I feel like it's in popular culture, I think people are sort of more in the know. Um, People are familiar with what a milkweed is and maybe have thought about planting native but haven't quite done it can you kind of talk us through like some first baby steps in how to do it we've convinced people to do it now how to do it follow-up comment when I was first getting started I thought in order to do a native garden I had to till up my whole yard which I never did by the way but that might be a good starting point where at what do they need to do to even get their yard or space ready sure well, I'll take those those two those two stages. Uh, you know, first with the monarch, 
I, ecosystems and native plant food pyramids and, and all the fauna that they attract are really diverse and complex systems. And they take time to appreciate and understand. And that takes patience and years of, of sort of observation and a really willingness to, to learn and be passionate about it. And not everybody just has that naturally. So sometimes taking, taking this in baby steps and taking it in very small bite-sized pieces, uh, like promoting just one insect, like the charismatic monarch butterfly. Uh, you know, who doesn't like a monarch butterfly? And so, yeah, let's focus on that. And let's let's talk about, you know, the life cycle that depends on, you know, a whole genera of plants in, in Asclepius that, that helps uh, that monarch carry on its life cycle and Oh yeah, it's also a, a migratory species and it goes from from Mexico to Canada and back uh, through you know four generations in a given year. You know, it's a fascinating species to be able to to tell some of those stories and bring so many elements of, of ecosystem education. You know, one that is very much tied to the, the the great plains flyway you know many of these milkweed species or most of them are are associated with with grassland ecosystems and so you know we have this uh, central states corridor where this this monarch goes back and forth and so it can be very much tied to our understanding of the environment in a lot of ways, you know, the, the plants that it depends on, you know, the, the insect that, that it represents as far as uh, the, the type of fauna that are out there, you know, the, the reliance on, on environmental cues of, of, of maybe light and temperature and, and, and how those relate to the success of that butterfly, how they relate to agricultural systems, and how you know our change in agricultural systems from say a, a tilling, uh, you know, cultivation-heavy sort of agriculture to more of a of a no-till, chemical-intensive uh, approach has has really been detrimental to one particular species of butterfly. So understanding how human impacts on the landscape can affect the environment and the, and the ecology around us. There are just so many lessons that, that the monarch butterfly can, can bring to us. And, uh, you know, ecotourism in, in Mexico, all these, these lessons are, are just wonderful. And so if you only have a little bit of time to focus, like if I only at a field trip at the Arboretum can only say, I have a, you know, a 10, 15 minute introduction for these kids before we go out and we do active things out on the grounds, you bet I'm going to talk about the monarch butterfly and all the lessons that it brings along. And, you know, and especially as it becomes more imperiled and we see these trends of, of its reduction uh, in our environment, you know, it, it, it's easy to sound the alarms and try to highlight all the different reasons uh, that uh, that the monarch provides for us. So, yeah, I think that that's one element. You know, in the last couple of years, and maybe it's my bias because I'm steeped in the native plants world, but um, I just feel like the monarch has really elevated native plants in people's minds. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, or helped people connect the dots. Like, oh, if I plant what's native here, I will help this species. And then that's mm. sort of like a gate, the gateway drug, the gate, the gateway plant mm -hmm. to other plants. Yeah. 
for sure. I feel like I'm going to be plugging a lot of our own podcast episodes today. But if you want to learn more about the uh, Magnificent Monarch, check out episode 13 called The Magnificent Monarch, and you can learn more (laughs) about it. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, so now I like the reference. Go ahead. No, no, you go, Brad. I like the reference to the the gateway plane because I was thinking the exact same thing that it really is. It's one of those, uh, you know, those gateway drugs, so to speak, that uh, help you know lure us into uh, more of this world of, of landscaping with native plants. And um, of course, as you're choosing, you know, the first half a dozen or dozen species that you want to include. In your landscape, if you're just getting started in, in in thinking about you know broadening your your experience with native plants, I would absolutely recommend uh, including a milkweed. And you know, if you were to ask me uh, what what some of my favorite plants are for a, a beginner native landscaper, I would definitely choose uh, a milkweed. And you know, butterfly milkweed is oftentimes one of my favorites because it's just a it hasn't that orange flower that isn't represented elsewhere uh, in in the native plant realms, at least where we are here. But, you know, there are a number of milkweeds, other milkweeds as well, that I would definitely uh, promote. And I and I have a blog post where I try to go into, you know, many of the milkweeds that are represented in Kansas, and, uh, and then especially the ones that are they're a little bit easier to promote that have become a little more mainstream in the nursery trade, which I'm excited about. Uh, but definitely including milkweeds and being able to enjoy them, that life cycle process of seeing, you know, those monarchs come in and lay their eggs and be looking for the chrysalises and, or, or the eggs and, and, and the little, little caterpillars and the chrysalises and seeing those emerging uh, monarchs and, and being able to monitor that and, and see that take place in your landscape is, it's just very enjoyable and, and thrilling. I would even say. And, um, and so doing that in just small baby steps in our landscape is, is a very rewarding process. And yeah, I, I definitely don't re- recommend trying to just convert your whole landscape at once to, to native <laughs> plants. It's easy to do. It's easy to get excited and, and want to do that, but it's not sustainable. And, uh, and that it's mainly because of when you landscape with native plants, it is, it's not less work. Uh, I hate to uh, be that bearer of bad news, but uh, it's not a good decision to, to landscape with native plants because you want to make your landscaping experience easier and less work because really the best way to take care of the easiest way to take care of your landscape is probably with a mower. And uh, so uh, it has, it's kind of has to be a labor of love. And now that's less so if you have an area that you just want to throw, you know, a native plant seed mix into it and let it go wild and sort of more resemble something like a, a prairie ecosystem, which is very fun and it has lots of rewards. And I highly recommend it if you have the kind of space to do that. But as, as we've kind of alluded to earlier, that if you want it to be aesthetically pleasing, not just to yourself that might be, you know, that, uh, that botany nerd, uh, then if you want it to be appealing to your neighbors and to other people that you might try to inspire as you develop these native plant beds and gardens, 
you may want to go a little more horticultural and you may want to plant in those threes and fives and, and have splashes of color that sort of uh, give way through the seasons as, you know, one uh, group of plants flowers and sets seeds and then your eyes move to other areas that are having other interesting elements to it too. And so when you plant with those kinds of ideals in mind, it takes more planning. You know, it takes that preparation of uh, preparing the site well after you develop a, a plan of action for what you want to do. And then once you've done those two things, you you get those plants, you put them into place. You know, you're if you want to keep weeds at bay, which most of us oftentimes do if we're trying to promote just certain native plants, then, you know, it takes some sort of mulching uh, approach to help, you know, promote the plants you want and discourage uh, other annual uh, weeds that will certainly come in, um, in invade into your area. And then, um, you know, your other other elements of aesthetics too, like uh, putting boundaries around these gardens with uh, with some sort of a visual boundary. It may be edging of various types. I like to use, you know, our our native limestone that has this this striking white contrast with other kind of green colors around it that really helps sets off those beds. Um, yeah, those are those are some of the steps that you would go through, and and. It's easy to start small, easier than than starting big. And as you get the knack for going through those processes of, of promoting these native plant gardens in your landscape, you can always, as you start to get the hang of it and get better at it, you can expand those areas and you can create more gardens. And that's just what I like doing in my landscape. And, you know, you may come and see lots of mowed grass in my landscape. Well, that's just temporary placeholders for the future native plant gardens I'm going to tackle yeah. there uh, in the future. But it, it takes time and it takes patience and it's, it's a labor of love. If one were to start planting butterfly milkweed or foxglove beard tongue or any of the other nice beginner native plants, would you suggest they start from seed or they start with uh, young plants? What direction would you encourage people to go in when they are first getting started? Yeah, it helps to to define your goals and 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 your your willingness to have patience. Uh, if you are interested in the entire process, you know, being able to germinate that native seed, start with little seedlings, you know, see that that whole process. It can be very rewarding to to start with seed and and. Uh, you know, grow plants indoors if you if you have a place that you can do so uh, conducively. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a lovely process to to go through and and very educational as well. But uh, and and it's also more cost effective. I mean, you can mm. you don't it doesn't take much money to get into a, a bit of a seed mix or you know a few seed packets of, of some of these species. But it takes some know how to know how to break dormancy in those seeds. So oftentimes that's a like a sixty to ninety days of cold wet treatment. Oftentimes you know using plastic bags and soil in a refrigerator or or you can let nature do its thing and you can just plant those seeds in, in rows or whatever in, in the fall. Uh, and it can, you know, nature replicates that process of, of stratification as well. 
but but then know that you're starting with really tiny plants that are going to need to develop those root systems and it takes longer to do so so you may not see when those plants started from seed when they're you know going through this competitive process of of competing with other plants around them and developing those roots and it takes time it could be anywhere from two to five years before you see any of those plants actually start to flower Whereas if you start with a plant that already has a a partially developed root system and you put it in the ground and you protect it from competition with other plants by putting mulch around it and watering it regularly, you may see that plant bloom in that next year, in the next year or two. So you can really accelerate that process by starting with plants. So that's what I mean when it, when it depends on your, on your goals and objectives, whether it's a longer educational, more patient process, and you don't have a lot of money to start with, then maybe starting with, with, with seed or, or if it's a bigger area, you can definitely, uh, you know, populate a larger area with plants based on seed um, in, in a quicker fashion with fewer resources. But if you want to, if, if you're less patient, you want to see flowering, you want to see a uh, positive aesthetics much sooner that include flowers and, and more of a horticultural aesthetic than, than starting with plants is your way to go. So, so just for our listeners, so seeds are cheaper, but you got to cold stratify. Mm-hmm. So either in mm-hmm. the fridge or just plant them in the winter. So they get that 60 to 90 days cold. Um, but plants, so a little bit more expensive, but it is a, a lot of them are perennials. So you're making an investment. Um, and I, I sort of took the approach of planting in threes and fives, um, just a little bit at a time, like three plants a year. That's like 15 to $20 and they mm-hmm. come back every year. Um, so I see it as a good investment and, and yeah, I like seeing the plant right away. Um, and it's, it, when I grow with seed, I'm always worried that I'm going to pull the little seedling because I think it's a weed. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that is yeah, very true. That happens. And when you start with plants, it's always nice to, you know, planting in groupings of those three to fives helps you remember that, oh, there are a number of plants that look alike here. Yes. <laughs> and it, it aids the education of uh, creating a search image with these positive plants you put in place. And then you'll start to recognize when you have five or seven butterfly and milkweeds that that small dainty vegetation with the hairy stems and leaves. Oh yeah, that's butterfly milkweed. Uh, if you have a bunch of them together, whereas if you just have one, it's easy to forget those kind of things. And then keeping the tag with the plant also helps to aid that, that memory association with what those plants look like. I I wonder, are there any other plants that you might recommend as gateway plants? And I, I guess I also, selfishly want to share what my gateway plant was which is purple poppy mallow oh yes Yes. such a good plant i've had so much success with that one planting it in groups of three and five um and it just takes off and it really like the foliage is so interesting you know all season long and even through winter um and then and then you get two blooms one in the spring and then oftentimes it'll bloom again in the fall so i'm a fan of that one but any other species no, that's a lovely one. I, you know, and I, and it's such a hard question to answer. Like, what is your favorite plant? And yeah, know, part yeah. of it is like, well, what family do you want me to focus on? Or what season of the year do you want me to focus on? And, you know, what, what type of ecosystem do you want to focus on? You know, it can be shade or full sun and, and so forth. And, uh, but yeah. And I'll oftentimes veer towards, you know, what are our landscapes like, you know, many of us, 
don't have the the native prairie conditions and environment to deal with. You know, we have maybe the, you know, intense, just devastating heat that bounces off of a south-facing wall that exacerbates the, the drought and heat in a particular area. Or if you go to the other side of the house, you have a shadier, cool area that is a completely different environment, you know, in which to try to uh, select plants for. Or, you know, it could be that maybe you, you're gone for much of the summer and you like to focus your landscaping uh, efforts on spring and fall, you know? So it, a lot of these questions about, you know, favorite plants just depend on the times you want to be there. And I just like to include as much diversity in each one of those spaces and seasons as possible, but I'll, I'll just touch on on a few of them. So yeah, purple poppy mallow in the spring is a, is a, is a great one early summer. And it's oftentimes nice to choose some of those uh, shorter species that, uh, that, that are shorter in stature and that maybe oftentimes if we start in, in small gardens, you know, that you don't want a big plant to overtake the, the aesthetics or, or the space in, in those gardens. So starting with small plants and things like purple poppy mallow, Missouri evening primrose, uh, the uh, uh, rose verbena, uh, some of the alliums like uh you know, a prairie wild onion or prairie garlic. You know, some some of those are really nice species. Many of them, you know, the, those bloom earlier in the spring. They're shorter in stature, and they're always a really nice element to include into your garden. And then as you get later into the summer, you know, you're going to get some more of the milkweeds. You get common milkweed, butterfly milkweed. You get some species. Uh, you start to get some of the, the sunflower family plants like the echinaceas, you know, coming into, you know, who doesn't want a great number of echinaceas in, in your garden? You know, not only for aesthetics, the insects they attract, but the story they tell as with regard to the, you know, herbal medicinal plants that, uh, you know, it's one of the, the stronger uh, uh, medicinal components like chewing on a seed or a root and making your teeth go numb. It's, you know, it's a great, one of those gateway plants again, for, for getting kids interested and, and telling some of those stories and connecting people to the landscape. You know, you, you get some of the, the legumes. So like the, the prairie clovers, purple prairie clover, white prairie clover, round headed prairie clover, you know, um, um, prairie bush clover there there are a number of different legumes that and then telling the story about how those plants feed other plants with the the nitrogen that they fix through these nodules and their roots that help benefit the other plants around them but they also have their own you know their great own great aesthetics and, and ecosystem function too and you know, and then you veer more towards the fall and you get even more of the sunflower plants. You know, the uh, a lot of the sunflowers uh, really coming on strong in, in late summer and then into fall as you get the, the goldenrods and uh, the asters and, you know, something like a mint plant mint family plant like blue salvia you know these are all just some of those great splashes of color that you get as you get in towards fall you know and we're just talking about uh you know full sun prairie plants here uh you could many of us have trees and shade and you know we talked about like the you know the hvac uh benefits of, of having trees and you know humans we can we can be kind of wimpy and we like we 
we're not conditioned to be out there in the, you know, the full sun summer all the time. And so, you know, we definitely like shade in our landscapes and, and there are whole suites of, of native plants. If you borrow from the, you know, the plants that would have existed originally in Eastern Kansas. So, you know, drawing on, on a number of those plants that, that you might incorporate into your landscape and including some of the grasses and sedges that would also do well in, in those environments. So, yeah, it, it's just so much about thinking about uh, place and, and time of the year and, you know, what your goals are if you're trying to just have something that looks nice or whether you're trying to attract certain wildlife species. There, there's so many things to consider as we figure out what are some of those initial first native plants that we want to include in our landscape. But, you know, that's also part of our job as as native plant providers, like uh, through our plant sales at Dick Arboretum, you know, we're going to oftentimes promote species that do well together or that will bloom at the same time to try to help provide some of those aesthetic packages that you might want to put in your landscape that not only please you aesthetically, but they're also going to have other wildlife benefits, too. Uh, so and and, you know, ones that are easier to grow. So. You know, I did mention that butterfly milkweed is one of my favorite plants, but it can be kind of tough to establish. It, it can be finicky in the landscape. And I oftentimes say that, you know, if I want to establish butterfly milkweed successfully in my landscape, I have to plan on about a 50% loss uh, with, with those plants because, you know, getting those right conditions can be hard in our urban landscapes. Whereas a plant like, say, foxglove beard tongue, uh, you know, a penstemon, um, especially like penstemon digitalis, uh, there come some of the cultivar names like, uh, uh, let's see, Husker Red or uh, Dark Towers. Dark Towers, you know, some yeah. Some of these penstemon are really easy to grow plants and and in no time in a couple of years it's going to be an expanding crown and you can start to divide those and spread it in other areas of your landscape too and you know so there are many benefits to having those plants and not only do they look cool they have these great flowers they have this really aesthetically pleasing reddish green hues of vegetation but the seed heads have these little tulip tulip shaped uh, uh, seed pods that have all these great little tiny square seeds in them and oh yeah and how did they get there well it took bumblebees to come in and you know and pollinate all these flowers so there's so many cool elements to, to having certain native plants like like those so if people are interested in picking up a couple native plants to give it a shot i know dick arboretum has a you, you guys have a ton of resources online to help you sort of prepare and figure out which plant would be best but could a person also just show up at your twice a year sale and ask you know i've got this corner of my yard and it's this kind of soil and this kind of sun what would you recommend and you guys will give them a, a good recommendation you bet yeah and many people start out that way they'll just show up uh you know during the you know, the, the public aspects of the sale, you know, our sale starts with our members on Thursday, uh, like April 21st, this spring. And then, you know, but then the 22nd through the 25th are the, the, are well, the available to the whole population. We'll get, we'll see a lot more people in those latter days that are just showing up to just say, Hey, I just want to get started. And, you know, we can either recommend a few species, uh, that they might want to get started with. Uh, we also provide lots of, you know, educational placards that, that accompany the, the plants in there. So if you'd like to browse on your own and, and kind of, you know, 
cue into certain aesthetics or, or host plants or something like that. You can choose those on your own with some, you know, with some, some education and some, some knowledge as you, as you, you know, come into the process. We also have tried to, you know, provide groupings of plants. Like we'll we'll promote certain plant kits, you know, that that have a certain focus or an aesthetic or, you know, grouping of species that all bloom around the same time. You know, these are all just little aids that we try to help provide uh, to make getting into the world of native plants a little easier. And and then you'll find a lot of those people that are coming in, you know, as beginners and and the latter part of the plant sale. You know, they'll start to see how much fun this is and how interesting it is and how life-giving it is as a sort of a lifelong passion. And they become members and then they start to get, you know, excited and they start to develop their lists earlier in the season and they start putting in, you know, orders earlier on that we'll pull and we'll have available for them, you know, to just show up and we'll put them in your car or, you know, uh, you know, people start to get hooked and they become more educated and they become more passionate about landscaping with native plants when they see the benefits that, that are had, that can be had both, you know, in your improving your landscape, uh, both aesthetically and from a, a perspective of biological diversity, but how much fun it is and how much it adds value to your life. And so we definitely see this, this evolution or this moving on a spectrum from beginner to experienced native uh, plant connoisseur and and it's really fun to to follow that journey with people and and i know you both <laughs> and i've seen i i've seen the excitement that that you take on as well you know as, as you go down this journey and it's it's just i think that that's another element of this is, you know, a part of our mission at the Arboretum is to cultivate transformative relationships between people and the land. And there's no better way to do that than native plants. I think it's just, it's really fun to see how people connect to the landscape by getting interested in and engaging with and utilizing native plants in their landscapes. Here, here. And I would just encourage listeners, if you don't live near Heston, make the drive, make the trip because it's a cool town you know, spend the whole day there, go to the Dick Arboretum for their plant sale, get a coffee at the local coffee shop, check out the town. Um, I, since I've moved away from Heston, um, I, my mom and I still make the trip every year and it's a few hours drive, but we stay, you know, we spend the whole day out there and come back with a car full of plants. It's great. I just checked my calendar Fantastic. and I will be gone and I am <gasps> devastated. <laughs> I am Let me know what you need. Okay. You. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I might add too, you know, people get really excited to plant in spring and that is the most popular time that most people get out and, and buy their plants and, and do gardening. But when you think about long-term success, it's easiest and probably most effective to, to do this process in fall because then you have a, a cooler fall season to get those plants established there's further establishment that happens through the dormant time in winter. And then you have, uh, you know, that, that sort of, uh, third stage of establishment in the following spring. So you have kind of three seasons before the brutal summer heat hits. And, and if you have, you know, a plant that's been established for nine months already and has developed a, um, a more of established root system, it's going to have a lot better chance of survival in that, you know, intensive summer heat that can involve 100 degree temperatures than if you just planted in the spring. And those plants can, you know, 
get smacked pretty hard by summer heat when they've only had a, a month or two to, to, to try to develop root systems. And so that's why you, you offer the fall plant sale. When is that? September? Indeed. In September. September yes. September. Okay. I'm going to look up when those dates are generally the second weekend. Um, it looks like September 9 through 11 will be our 2022 fall native plant days. Okay. And for those of you, if you can't um, make it to Heston in person, there are a couple of great online resources that you can actually get native plants from. For example, the National Wildlife Federation has the Garden for Wildlife program. Um, They've partnered up with the plant with a purpose and you can actually go in there, select the state that you're from, and it will bring up a host of bundles of live plants that you can purchase that are native to the area and you can get started on your native garden today. It's a fantastic opportunity. I think right now they even have like a 10% off deal on all new orders. Um, I'm probably going to utilize that myself. I just think it's a really great program and I highly recommend checking it out if you're not familiar with it. And then for seeds, Chickadee Checkoff has seed packs that are available at any state park. Is that correct? Any state office. State office. Okay. So head into your state wildlife and parks office and pick up your free seed packet if you want to try the seed route. And they're all native. You don't have to worry about any oddballs getting mixed in there. Um, All these seeds were specifically chosen by our biologists so that they will be the most effective in Kansas, which is fantastic. So Brad, just kind of in wrapping up our our episode here, I wondered what kind of challenge you might pose to our listeners. I would like to challenge your listeners to take on the inspiration of native plants as a lifelong venture. It is something that, it, it is a realm that will be able to teach you new concepts and, and find new and fascinating details and facts uh, throughout the rest of your life. It, it's such a complex and, and interesting realm, uh, not only getting into the plants and, and all the different, you know, hundreds of species of, of native plants that we have uh, to, to learn about and, and utilize in Kansas, but, but then just getting attached to all of the wildlife uh, that these plant communities uh, will will bring into your landscapes. And, and you know, as the, the baseball analogy in a field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. It is it is so true about native plant communities and, and bringing in, the, you know, the wildlife that will be attracted to those. So I would like to challenge your your listeners to be lifelong learners in their lands approaches to landscaping because it will be uh it will benefit your your landscapes it will benefit you as a as a as a more interesting and well-rounded person you'll become more in tune with uh you know becoming a a, a, more, a better well-informed environmental citizen because it it connects you and and it teaches you so much about uh, the environment around you when you tune into the native plants and the ecosystems that they inhabit and you know there are so many educational ways to to enhance that that process and this exploration of native plants you know here at the arboretum will provide you know many different resources as far as like uh, classes and seminars and and uh, symposia and things that uh, 
you know, that can help. Uh, there's so many smart people out there to, to help uh, learn from. And so we try to, to help get our members in, in touch with, with some of that great knowledge out there. And then, you know, touching base with, with other entities. There's so many great entities throughout the state that not only look at plants and, and by the way, I'd give a plug for our Kansas native plant society. That is a statewide organization that promotes native plants uh, throughout the state and, and has lots of educational outings and, and meetings to, to help facilitate that process. But, you know, so many other areas of, of the ecosystems to enjoy, you know, Lindsay, what you're doing with, with fungi and, and that whole new world to me is just something that I just want to just spend more time in or it's insects or it's, you know, reptiles and herpetology or it's birds and, you know, the Audubon society, or, you know, it's, it's soils or it's, you know, it's fossils or it's gems and minerals or, you know, it's just on and on. There's so many, it's just one thing leads to another. And there's, it, it really will be a, a journey that will, will not disappoint and uh, just keep you engaged for the rest of your lifetime. So I would say open up those, uh, those ideals of landscapes and, and you'll, you'll just fall in love with it. Brad, you have a way of making me want to go outside and dig in the dirt. <laughs> Truly, like I'm, I want to leave after we're done recording this and go work on my garden. Walk into the field. Um, but yeah, our listeners, once you get that native garden established, consider certifying it through the National Wildlife Federation. Um, it, it would be a certified wildlife habitat. There are a couple of criteria that you would have to meet, including food, which could be any of the number of plants that you're planting, a water source, cover, places to raise young like a bird box or um, and excuse me, and sustainable practices like using compost or removing removing invasive species. But um, there is a twenty dollar fee for that. But that twenty dollar fee goes back to the organization and helps inspire others to make a difference and start planting their own native plants and just all around benefits wildlife. So think about that as you're moving forward um, and trying to design your garden. It's a great program. It also benefits the Kansas Wildlife Federation, and we're huge advocates for it. So check it out. We'll post a link in the show notes um do we have any parting questions or comments i want to echo how great that program is i know a lot of people around here and especially our local communities have gotten involved with uh, those national wildlife federation uh, programs and and I, I remember one that was called like prairie pocket gardens you know and helping certify your not only your landscape but your community by how many different gardens you know you can 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 expand and and, and make more of those gardens in your community I, I thought that was a really great concept and then i also want to just put a plug out there for for getting young people involved not only do this with yourself and enjoy that process with yourself, but see the excitement that of, of getting kids involved in this process. And, you know, we have a program called Earth Partnership for Schools that, uh, and I'll give another plug for that, that ties in well to the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks of uh, OWLS, the Outdoor Wildlife Laboratory Sites Program, is a great program that's been in place for decades. And, uh, you know, it really does promote 
schools and and teachers being able to start these gardens on school grounds and you know with our program with our partnership for schools helping promote that uh it's it's just been it's been a real gift that this state agency in kansas has has given to you know generations of students uh, over over decades and uh so i want to plug that program it's, it's a great initiative and i hope it keeps going with your you know the support of the chickadee checkoff programs and the you know the uh, permits for for hunters and, and fisher people so uh, yeah great program there too yeah yeah i'm hoping to get um mike Rader or someone else on for an episode to go to talk more about the owls project it's fantastic as well um yeah anything else you guys i i hope to see some of you in heston in april at the sale i will be there in spirit <laughs> i'll be there physically <laughs> buying plants Okay, well, Brad, this has been a fantastic episode. Honestly, I think I could sit here and talk to you about plants all day. I don't think that's the first time I've ever, ever said that to you. Expect to hear it again throughout the throughout the throughout life throughout time. Yes, <laughs> but seriously, thank you so much for taking time and coming on the show today. Um, if our listeners want to learn more, um, we can just send them your way. Send them over to Dick Arboretum's website and have them learn when your events are and learn more about the offerings that are happening over there. And yeah, we'll, we'll go from there, but well, I appreciated the invite. Thank you so much for what you guys are doing. The, uh, the Flatliner podcast is a great idea. You are both very good at this. And so just keep, keep preaching it. Oh, nice thanks story. Brad. Thank oh, you thanks, so Brad. much. Okay. Well, right. listeners just remember that flat is, is a state, state of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at kswildlifefed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. <laughs> <laughs>